check. We're on. Um, Bethany, you're um, you're a gift to this church, and we're gonna miss you for the next month. And uh, I want you to know that everything's gonna be all right here. And uh, this whole church is in agreement that we want you to have rest with your family, and uh, and sincerely hope that uh, this time away is a gift to you and your husband and your family. You get to see there. Um, you've done an amazing job with these kids up here in the first in the in the, in the first kind of month of me being here. Um, and you guys may not know this, Bethany teaches kids, but that's not part of her job description. She just picks that up. And there's people who, who, who wouldn't even show up to church if they're traveling today. Um, Bethany stepped in and, and uh, took on more the day she's traveling. So um, you're a gift. Thanks for doing that. It was good. Um, I got a question for you guys. When was the last time that you... Ask God this question. When was the last time? Can you recall the last time that you asked God the question, um, where do you want me to go? Or what do you want me to do? Think about it for a sec. I want you to think about this for a second. When was the last time you asked God the question, sincerely asked him, and expected an answer from him? The question, uh, God, where do you want me to go and what do you want me to do? If you're having a hard time thinking of the answer to that question, um, I understand because I had a hard time thinking about the answer to that question. God, where do you want me to go and what do you want me to do? Sorry, guys. If you've thought of something, I want to hear it. I don't want to hear a long sentence. I just want to hear a, a person or a place or a, very, a thing that God told you to do. So if you've thought of something... Let me know what that is. Anybody? To say a name or a place or something you had to do. Talk. You had to talk. Mission. What's that? Mission. You did a missions. That's right. A you pursued a big vision. Okay. A visit? Yeah. Anywhere specifically that you went? God said, go there, and you went there. What's that? Here. Guatemala. Here's the uh, follow-up. How did you know that was God? You're in peace? How do you ever know it's God. It's too big, yeah? It's simple, okay? That's how you knew it was God? It required me to trust. Yeah? It brought you closer to God? I don't know um, if you're like me in this, but um, I don't think I'm the only one who's skeptical of God speaking to me. I'm deeply skeptical of uh, whether or not it's God speaking to me. I don't know if you guys pray these prayers and ask God for things and then, and then get a sense or a prompting or, or a thought or something and then you immediately are skeptical of it, right? Is that God, really? And I'm not only skeptical for myself, I'm, I'm even more skeptical for other people. 
Like if somebody, if you know me and, and, and you came up to me and, and you said, hey, God told me to do this, I apologize in advance. My first thought is probably, okay, right? Yeah. Uh, my friend uh, Luis reminded me of a story I didn't even remember. But, um, but there, was, there was a day a little while ago where, where Luis was um, locked out of his house and he prayed and asked God to tell him where to go because he didn't have anywhere to go. He was locked out of his house. And he got answer, God answered him and told him, Starbucks, right? Is that right? Luis shows up to Starbucks, who happens to be there. I was there waiting for a friend, a, 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 a mutual friend. And Luis, to Luis, this was an answer to God's prayer, right? He was like, oh, this was a divine appointment. I was supposed to be here. God told me to be here. He knew Andrew was going to be here. This explains everything. And what did I respond with? You just forgot your key, bro. Like, where else are you going to go? Starbucks, right? That's typically uh, my response. Am I the only one like this or are you like this? I get a sense that we're like this. I can't help myself but question my thoughts and my impressions or my feelings. And, and, and the question is, are you, am I sure that's not my inner like animalistic desire or my inner desire for control? Am I sure that that's not me manipulating a situation that's going to benefit me? Am I sure it's not just the thing I want to do? Am I sure that it's not just the thing that benefits me socially? I ask myself these questions all the time. Sometimes, I think it's, um, it's to my benefit. Sometimes, I think it's a good thing to be skeptical. Sometimes, I, uh, I think that it is, um, it's actually God wanting me to second-guess something. But I also think a lot of times uh, my own skepticism is getting in the way of me hearing something from God or listening to God. I don't know if that's you. I question a lot. And um, I feel like today, from today's story, my sense from today's story is that those questions are oftentimes the thing that are getting in the way of me actually doing the very thing God may be wanting me to do. It's a, um, it's a reasonable question to ask because we don't want to look silly and we don't want to do things that are weird or odd and we don't want to do things that are actually our own personal and selfish desire. But today, I, uh, I want us to look at a response in the first half of the story of how Paul and his disciples responded to a prompting and maybe learn something for it. And then what we're going to do is we're going to learn a little bit about uh, the fruit of their reaction to that response. And so if you have scriptures with you, you can open up to Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at verse uh, 9 through 15 here. Bethany told you a little bit about what's going on in the story, but I'll tell you a little bit more. Paul and Barnabas, these were like the heavyweights of the first missionary journey. These guys were like the dynamic duo, and, uh, and they had been going all over the place, preaching the gospel, people were getting saved. If you know the story of Acts, it's amazing stuff. And then they find themselves in Jerusalem, and uh, at this thing called the Jerusalem Council. Basically, this is where 
people got together and said, hey, um, do Gentile Christians have to get circumcised like the Jewish Christians? And they determined at this council, no, thank God they determined that so that the gospel could go forth and it didn't require adult uh, circumcision, right? That was, that was the praise God moment for all the men in the room, right? When, so they decided that together and then they traveled up to Antioch, uh, a little bit north of there. And it says in the text that Barnabas and Paul had a sharp division or, or some sort of disagreement. We don't really know what that disagreement was, but it was so sharp that it forced them to part ways with one another. And so Barnabas goes one way and Paul goes the other way. Barnabas takes some people, Paul takes some people. Paul, he takes Silas, Luke, and we know that he took Luke with him because uh, Luke tells a lot of this part of the story. Uh, he includes himself into it. He says, we, so Luke was with him. And then it says along the way, they picked up Timothy. And Timothy is the disciple that, we, um, that Paul wrote letters to later on. So that's the same guy. Uh, so he picks up Timothy and takes him along this missionary journey with them. And like Bethany told you, she showed you the map of their travels from uh, Tros across the sea. But actually, if you look along, uh, see in Syria there, that line that goes north, uh, uh, kind of on the outside, if you follow that color line, I'm colorblind, so I can't even see half of what is going on here, but you probably can. So you take that kind of outside line, and you take that up north, and up through uh, Cilicia, exactly. That's the second journey. So this is the journey that they're on. And, uh, and they go from place to place. And, and it says here in the text, it says that their purpose of going was to go to churches and strengthen them. And it says that they accomplished that. Now, like Bethany showed you, this looks like, okay, this is a, a region. Maybe it's not that far. Um, this is modern day, what it looks like, from Jerusalem all the way to where they ended up, Kavala, Greece. And uh, it's like 2,500 kilometers of travel. And so... In today's Canadian terms, that would be like going from Milton to the, to the edge of Cape Breton, just so you understand. But this is during the time where they didn't have planes, trains, and automobiles, right? So you can imagine this long journey of thousands of kilometers uh, on donkey, on horseback, on foot, all for the purpose of just following God's call and going to find churches and uh, to strengthen them. I could imagine, like Bethany suggested, um, when they got to Tros, they're pretty exhausted and demoralized. And the reason why is not just because this journey was long and it was a major journey, but we actually read in the text, this is an interesting language to read in the text, it says that um, the certain places they wanted to go, I think Myasia was one of them, God prevented, the Holy Spirit prevented them from going, right? Which is an odd thing, they're traveling thousands of kilometers and they're just trying to go to a city to bless a church, and they said the Holy Spirit prevented them. So they had to skirt around and continue to travel through the wilderness for another hundreds and hundreds of kilometers to end up in the port city of Tros. So by the time they got there, I could imagine if it was me, I would be annoyed. I'd be frustrated. I'd feel like I'm doing what God's called me to do, but, but where do we go next? Because the last two places we tried to go were not fruitful. And, and, and God didn't even allow us to go there. So really what's going on here? Okay, That's where we pick up the story. So they're there in Tros. And, uh, and they're wondering what's next. And so uh, in verse 9 uh, and 10, we see, um, we see the, the vision that Paul got. It says, after Paul saw the vision, uh, we immediately went over to Macedonia, concluding that God called us to proclaim the good news. The vision was like what Bethany said, 
Paul got this vision, this dream, where some man came to him and said, you need to come over here to Macedonia. We need you to come here. And so when they saw that, and they talked about it, they immediately concluded that God was calling them to proclaim the good news to the Macedonians. It was as simple as that for them. They had a dream. It seemed legit enough. So they jumped on a boat and they went to Macedonia, concluding that God had called them there. Now let's camp here for a minute. What if the simple answer to the question that we ask all the time, that we ask at the beginning, is this really God? Do we know if this is God, right? We wrestle with that so much. What if the simple answer, and I'm not suggesting there is a simple one, but what if the simple answer sometimes is found in the response of the disciples that we see here? What if the simple answer sometimes to that question that we ask God, where do you want me to go? And what do you want me to be doing? What if the simple answer is literally, meh, seems legit, let's go, right? Do you know people who live like that? I know a couple, not many, right? But I know a few of them, and they're an amazing gift to the church. Eh, Seems like God said it. So we'll go and we'll conclude that that's where he wants us to go, and that's what he wants us to to do. It's kind of a scary response. It's kind of, it's a little bit too simple for me. And it's even a little bit dangerous, isn't it? Like, I don't know about you, especially as a Canadian here, I, I don't, I'm terrified of being led uh, astray. I, I am, uh, I'm afraid of, of being led by something other than God or something other than good reason. I don't know about you, but I am, um, like I said, I'm pretty skeptical of, of, of where I'm going to go and what I'm going to spend my time on because I don't want to waste it. And uh, I also don't want to assume that God's telling me something to do. I want to have a good reason for it. If you're like, if you're like me, you, you want to have a good reason for it. You want to have a good defense for what you do because you don't want to be led by your own selfishness. Or shall I even say you don't want to be led by like a demon or something, you know? Like some people think demons talk to them and lead them astray, right? You don't want to be led astray by a demon. So it's, it's actually really dangerous and risky to live that way. And if you know someone who lives that way, if you're anything like me, when they tell you these stories, you probably feel a little bit awkward around them. You're probably like, are you really sure? Like, I don't know, it might take you a little while to be inspired by their faith because they're living this really risky, dangerous way. And, and especially in the church today and the way that we do church and the way that we talk about God, it, it, it seems like kind of reckless, right? Like it seems like that group of people act like that and think like that, but us reasonable people wouldn't, wouldn't be like that, right? We, wouldn't, we, wouldn't, we would be skeptical. We would double check. We would triple check. We would verify that it was the prompting of God before we actually do anything. And if we do act, I don't know if you're like me, but if you do act, you have a good explanation for it. That doesn't include, God just told me, right? Like you probably, if, especially if your coworkers asking like, why are you going there? You're probably not saying, God told me, right? You're probably saying, well, you know, it's, 
it's this group of people and they need this and I can do this and here's all the good reasons for it and it's gonna, and this is what's gonna happen and all that, right? You, you've got a good explanation. If your family asks you, why, why are you transitioning your career to do that? You're going into ministry, you're doing missionary work, you're, you're like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You've probably got a pretty good explanation and your explanation probably doesn't include something as simple as, man, God gave me a dream and I gotta do it. That's me. I'm not the only one who plays this game with my faith, am I? Okay, good. Here's the question I've been asking myself lately. What is the cost of my need for reasonableness? Like, what's the cost for my need to know with certainty? What is the cost of that? How is that working out for me? I've been asking myself this question. How effective is my mission with this posture and attitude? That I, it's so natural to me to feel all this way. How's that working out for me? How effective is my mission? Is it really that effective? Because I think I've got it all under control, don't I? Then I look around me and I go, I don't know if I'm even doing much, you know? The answer I came up with um, to these questions, and it's a working answer, sometimes it's necessary. I know that's such a cop out, right? Sometimes it's necessary. And sometimes it's to the benefit of the kingdom. But here's the important part. This is where I'm at today. Or at least this is what I'm considering might be true today. Sometimes it's necessary, but mostly it holds me back out of fear from stepping into what God may want to use me for here and now and into the future. That's where I'm at. Sometimes it's necessary, mostly this anxiety, this fear, this desire to have control and be so reasonable about it and be so certain about it, it is actually holding me back from what God may want to use me for. I get a sense that here in this church, and I don't know about you if you get the same sense too, but I get a sense in this church that we don't have too much of an issue with being so eager to step out in faith, blind faith. I get a sense from the group of people here, and more than the group of people here, I get a sense from just the culture that I live in that our problem is not stepping out in faith, right? Do you think so? You think that's our problem? We're taking too much risk and stepping out in faith? I don't think that's our problem. At least that's not my problem, and I think that's probably true of you. I think that we have the opposite challenge. I think we here in the Western church, especially the Canadian church, especially in an urban center, we have the opposite challenge. And maybe today, what we need is a story to remind us of the ways that the early church actually operated. These were brilliant men. Paul is brilliant. If you, can, if you can make sense of the book of Romans, you are as smart as Paul. Or not as smart as it, because he wrote them. He wrote it. And you and I can't even make sense of the dang thing. The guy's brilliant, right? This is how he lived. Maybe we need to be reminded of that faith that they lived with. And maybe the encouragement today that we can get is the fruit of that faith that we're going to look at. They immediately just concluded that this is where they had to be. They figured, why the heck not? Let's just go where God wants us. I don't know, man, it was a weird dream, but let's go there and see what's next for us. We're going to continue the story here in verse uh, 11 through 13. It says, we put out to sea from Tros and sailed a straight course to Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, and then from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We stayed in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate 
to the side of the river where we thought there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and we began to speak with the women who had assembled there. I was, um, I was on a trip last week with a group of Brazilians. I survived. Thank God. I'm here. Love you. We, um, <laughs> we visited a friend in Disbury, Alberta. Anybody know where Disbury, Alberta is? It's a small town, 5,000 people in between um, Red Deer and Calgary. We visited a dear friend of mine. And that friend of ours leads uh, worship at a church. And so in this small town of about 5,000 people, there's a church called Zion Church. It's a missionary church. It's not a charismatic church. It's, it's a, it'd be a lot like ours. Their background is a lot like ours here. Uh, and he leads worship there. And so this pastor of the church found out that a group of us were in town, a couple pastors, maybe a couple ministers, people who like to pray, right? There's like 400 people. It's not a small church. In a town of 5,000 people, 400 people go, this is the biggest church in the town. The pastor finds out that we're coming to town and he invites us in the service to get up at the front and pray and minister to people who want to come up at the end of the service and pray. This has never happened to me before. Ian's probably had lots of times where they're like, oh, this wise sage, of course, come pray for us, the prayers of a holy man, right? Not me. <laughs> no one's ever asked me to do that especially someone who doesn't know me. So we show up, and, uh, and they kind of have this, it wasn't an altar call, and like I said, they weren't a charismatic, typical charismatic movement where this is what they do all the time, but the, but the, the pastor believed that, that we were there to offer their church something. We were just there to visit a friend, but he thought that we had something to offer them. He thought, they thought that we could strengthen their church by just by being there and praying for people. So he invited us to stand at the front, and people came forward, and asked me to pray for them. It was wild. It was so crazy. And um, um, one, of the, one of the people who came forward, they said, um, they said, just pray for whatever the Holy Spirit tells you. <laughs> I'm like, give me something to go with, bro. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Come on. That's not me, you know? And, uh, and so I'm praying for this, this man. And uh, I'm sensing... I'm sensing that I should pray for a, a, a for and against abuse. It, it just felt like something about substance abuse or spousal abuse. So, so I started praying and started praying about that and then started praying about like spousal abuse and, 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 and abusive husbands, abu uh, women who are stuck in a, a relationship with abusive husbands. It just felt like a strong sense of that, right? And, um, and so he just said, thanks. And then some lady came up to us afterwards, totally unrelated. And we were asking her, like, they were asking us questions, and we were asking them questions, and I kind of asked her, this was at the end of the service, and, and so we're like, so what are the, some of the needs in the community? And she goes, man, there's, this, there's, um, there's, a, there's a lot of spousal abuse. There's a lot of women stuck in abusive relationships here, right? I'm like, okay. Immediately, I think, well, yeah, I know that small towns in Canada struggle with substance abuse, and if they struggle with substance abuse, they struggle with spousal abuse. So immediately, I'm like, that's why I prayed for it, because I know better, right? That stuff doesn't happen that much. But it was this powerful experience where their pastor just invited us to come and strengthen their church, and we had this opportunity to strengthen their church. And I'm telling you all this because that is kind of what Paul did on his missionary journeys. That's what we're going to read here. That's what we're seeing here. Paul went around and he looked for the church. And if you, if you read, it was on the Sabbath 
that they went down to the city gate in the river to look for people to strengthen, look for people to bless. Now, you may be wondering, why didn't they go to church on Sunday morning? I'll tell you. Um, there wasn't a church in Philippi at this point, and there wasn't even a synagogue. Most of the time, Paul and whoever he was with would go to the local synagogue on Sabbath, just like church on Sunday, and find a group of believers there and bless them. But there wasn't any. There wasn't even enough Jewish people who lived in Philippi for, them to, for there to be um, a synagogue. It was a, a large Roman city, and it was a very powerful and influential Roman city. Uh, but I didn't realize this until looking into it. Um, Jews wouldn't establish a synagogue in a city unless there was, I think the criteria was 10 strong Jewish men in the community. And if there's 10 strong Jewish men in the community, that would be enough for them to establish a synagogue. So what do we learn about Philippi? There wasn't even 10 strong men, strong Jewish men who lived in the city. And more than that, we see Paul go down to the river because they knew that if Christians or Jews were gathering somewhere, it would be outside the city gate down by the river. So he goes and finds a group of God-fearing people, Jews and Gentiles who, who knew Yahweh, and there wasn't a single man there. There was just a group of women, it says, right? Not a lot of people. But they knew where to go to bless people. So that's what they did. When they went, they stumbled upon Lydia. And this is Lydia's story. A couple things to understand about Lydia. First is that Lydia is described as a God-fearing woman. What that means is that Lydia wasn't a Jewish person of Jewish descent. She was a Gentile. But she was a God-fearer. What that meant was that she kind of had, she was sympathetic towards Yahweh as the one true God. So she was hanging out with, with God-fearers and Jewish women, and she would have been thought of as somebody who believed that Yahweh may be the one true God. That's what a God-fearer would have been. They feared God. They, they believed in God, the Jewish God, Yahweh. So that's what it meant for her to be a God-fearing woman. Not a Christian, not a fully Jewish person, but a God-fearer. So that's how you understand Lydia. The second thing to understand about Lydia is that she was famous for trade in purple cloth. I wore my purple today. Is this purple? Okay. Um, that's not significant because my daughter's favorite color is purple, even though that has some significance to it. Um, in the first century, purple was a very expensive um, color to have your clothes dyed in. It was the color of royalty. It was the color of the wealthy. And the reason it was the color of the royalty and the wealthy is because getting purple dye was actually a very... Um, a tenuous process. You actually had to extract it from a shellfish or something like that. So they, the only place to get purple dye was from a shellfish, which was a lot of work to fish and catch and then extract. And so only the most wealthy people wore purple, mostly royalty. So when you hear purple in the first century, that's why it's so expensive. And it always has meaning to it. So this has a lot of meaning. What does this mean? She was a dealer in purple cloth. That meant she was a baller. Right? Like she, she was rich. Like she was very wealthy, right? She's an extremely wealthy woman. But not because she was married to a wealthy man. Lydia was an independently strong and wealthy woman. Everything she had, she owned. She was the dealer in purple cloth. We don't really know much about her story. We don't know if she was ever married. We don't know 
if she inherited a family business, but what we do know is that she was a strong, independent, and wealthy, um, wealthy woman. Now, the disciples didn't know this coming there, obviously, right? God gave them a dream, and a Macedonian man, because where they were in Philippi is in the region of Macedonia, a Macedonian man invited them in the dream, except for it was Lydia, what the story is about. She's the one who they truly encountered. So they show up, and they, they tell Lydia the gospel, and she believes she believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that, she, that he is the Savior. And she not only believes, but she tells her whole household. And her whole household believes. And her whole household gets baptized, is what the text says. It's a pretty amazing story. Now, Lydia's household would have been filled with a lot of people. Because she was rich. So it would have been a really big house with family, maybe kids and grandkids, maybe not, other um, extended family members. It probably would have had lots of workers in her household. And when they say the household, everyone who lived in and around the house, that's what it means, right? So they all got baptized. And then she invites them to stay in her home. So she invites this group of disciples to stay with her. So she obviously had a really big house full of lots of people and room for more. It's important that you get this picture of Lydia and understand the significance of her, what we would call conversion. Later in the scriptures, uh, we read a letter from Paul to this church in Philippi, the book of Philippians you're familiar with. That's to this group of people. So there's a church established there at this point. It's believed that that church started, where do you think? Lydia's home. And who led it and financed it? Well, Lydia did. And he says in his letter to the Philippians, especially, compared to all the other letters, he says, especially at the end, he says, thank you so much for your generosity. Not because I want more from you, but because your generosity to me has allowed me to accomplish the missionary work that I've been doing. And I wouldn't have been able to accomplish it without your generosity, church in Philippi, i.e., Lydia. Check this out. John Polhill says at Southern Baptist University, he says, women like Lydia were particularly prominent in Paul's missionary efforts in this portion of Acts. The women in Thessalonica and Berea, Damaris and Athens, and Priscilla and Corinth. Priscilla and Lydia took an active role in ministry in their churches. This was in due parts to the more elevated status of women in contemporary Greek and Roman society. This was particularly true in the first century when women were given a number of legal privileges such as initiating divorce, signing legal documents, and even holding honorary public titles. The prominent role of the women in Acts is perhaps due even more to the message Paul brought to them. The message in Galatians that we read, Galatians 3.28, in Christ Jesus there is neither male nor female. It's important to note, because this is where the text is taking us this morning, it's important to note for those who are here this morning, that I want to reassure you here at Southside, um, we believe strongly in God's desire to use both men and women equally to further his kingdom work and accomplish his mission that he has called us to here in Milton. We believe that strongly. And um, texts like this are evidence that that's what Paul was about, particularly in a society that empowered that. But generally the takeaway today needs to be that we as a church and a community and a kingdom people in Milton need to make it more of a practice to pray that terrifying, risky, and uncertain prayer. God, where do you want me to go? And what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? And what do you want me to do? 
And if we get the slightest semblance of an answer, maybe you get a vision, maybe you don't. Maybe you get a prompting, maybe you get a name, maybe you get a thing to pray about. I don't know what it is, but what we need a lot more of is to be a people who are willing to be obedient to whatever that is and to just do it. Lydia not only came to faith in Jesus, she led her whole household to get baptized, she personally facilitated the local church in Philippi, and she personally funded the missionary work of Paul that we today are benefactors of. Lydia did that. All because Paul got a dream, right? And he concluded, I don't know, God's telling us to do this. I think this week we just need to walk away with a challenge. I don't know how often we walk away with a challenge or something to do. Maybe this week is a week for that. My encouragement to our church and our, to our community this week um, is for everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus as their Lord to spend a little bit of time in prayer this week. Take a space, find it. Should take you a little longer than five minutes because for the first five minutes, you're going to be wrestling with why the heck am I doing this, right? And then, and then the next five minutes, you're going to be wrestling with all of your, your reasoning that this is silly or, or your fear or your justification or, you know what I mean? You're going to be wrestling with that if you take some minutes and think about it and pray about it and just slow down. So take more than that to get to the point where your body and your mind slow down, where you can pray this prayer. God, what do you want me to do? And like, where do you want me to go? And give yourself enough time to listen. I'm not promising you'll get any sort of impression. I'm not promising you'll get any sort of direction. I don't know that. What I know is when Paul and his team did it, sometimes God showed up. Sometimes he shut doors on them, and sometimes he opened doors for them. So our promise is that God wants us to act in faith and do that. And then the second part of the challenge is um, if you pray this prayer, and if a name comes up to message if a place comes up like Starbucks to go or something, it could be as silly as that, right? And it's not silly, but it feels silly, right? I don't know what it is. It may not be go to Brazil on a mission trip or go back to the you know, UK. You're already planned. God already told you to do that, so you're fine. Um, it may not be go to the other side of the earth, right? Walk on foot for 2,000 kilometers to meet a random group of people that by a river. Probably isn't that, but it might be reach out to somebody. It might be um, reconnect with this person because they might be in pain and you don't know. It might be like show up to somebody's house or bring something to somebody to do something. Whatever it is, I don't know what it is. Here's what I'm inviting you to do. Do it. Just do it. Whatever it is, just do it. And you'll feel silly about it and odds are a lot of us will fall on our face, right? It'll feel weird. But here's what will happen. Here's what does happen. You end up showing up. And when you show up, whether that's on your phone to call someone or it's in a phone call, you're like, I don't know, I just felt like I was supposed to call you, right? You're there. You're on the phone with someone. You're at a place with someone. You're in their living room. And you're like, and when you're there, what happens is you feel like, I think God told me to be here and I don't know why. Maybe he'll tell you why. Maybe he won't. But what you're going to do is you're going to be present and active, open to what God wants to use you for in that moment. Because most places we go, we're not there like, okay, so I'm here to, to do what God wants me to do, right? We're there for a practical reason, like buying groceries at the grocery store. Wherever you end up being, you'll be in a space where you're like, God, what do you want me to do with me here? And he might have something to teach you and tell you. He might, there might be an encounter with somebody. There might not. 
There might be this awkward fall in your face moment and just be really weird and awkward. But what I do promise, I promise this, is I don't think you're gonna, I don't think you're gonna walk away from that too discouraged. And the reason why is because minimally what will happen is you'll have stepped out in faith for the first time in a long time. Minimally what will happen is you will get over that barrier of fear that you and I have so much of just to walk across the room or go to the store or pray God, ask, ask God what to do and where to go. And you'll feel blessed by God for having done that and acted in faith, a faith I promise that. So that's the, that's the challenge this week based on this story. Let me pray and then we're going to sing another song together. God, we're, um, there's nothing different about us than the disciples. There's different stuff, but God, there's not that much different. You're still doing what you're doing, what you've been about. You're still building your church. And you still want us to strengthen your church. And by strengthening it, you also want us to reach people who are lost, who are lonely, who are broken, who are anxious, who are scared, who are sad. And you want us to bring love and light to them. I just pray we as a church this week um, take a small, tiny step in the direction of faith and trust. That we see the example of the disciples and that can be an encouragement to us, an affirmation for us, something solid for us to just model. Where we, um, we just live a little bit more like, God, what do you want me to do? And then we're willing to just say, sure, I'll do whatever that is. And trust that you're there in it somewhere through it. We struggle with the idol of certainty, having surety about things, and it's only led us to be a complacent church. Like our, our, our faith is complacent. The Canadian church is so complacent because we second guess everything. And God, I just pray that we can be the type of people who, um, who are paying attention and who are aware but are also courageous, take risks, and step out in faith, and hope and trust that you're in it and are blessed by it. So I pray for, the, for, for this church here, that we together, yeah, we have a good experience this week with you somewhere, somehow, and maybe have a story to tell, that your Holy Spirit shows up in our honest and genuine prayers this week. That's our ask. And we're going to exercise our faith. That's what we're offering. Everything we're doing this morning is in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.